0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with David Head about his book about the use of the United States as a base for privateering in the early 19th century entitled Privateers of the Americas: Spanish-American Privateering from the United States in the Early Republic. David, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here today.
0: We're delighted to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: So I am originally from Western New York. I grew up in the Buffalo area, and uh, I moved down to Florida in 2010 after finishing my Ph.D. at the University of Buffalo. And I can tell you that uh, December in in Florida is much different than December in Buffalo. So uh, it's, a, it's a very different experience. It feels like April used to feel. So, so it's wonderful. So I enjoy being here
0: uh, this time of year. It's great. Does that make up for hurricane season?
1: Yes, yes, uh, I suppose it does. Uh, you know, they don't come all that often, so you kind of forget about it and uh, enjoy your your months of uh, of nice mild weather here. So it's
0: great. So, how did you come to write this book?
1: So the book is a revised version of my dissertation, and I, I went to grad school at the University of Buffalo, and I wanted to write about pirates. That was my goal, but I needed to find some pirates to write about. So I tried a couple of different ideas um, as I was early in grad school, and eventually I landed on an episode of sort of illegal privateering uh, that came up in the 18-teens uh, as people in the United States served in the Spanish-American Wars of Independence of that time, which was a violation of U.S. law to participate in a foreign war. I found some articles about this this episode of privateering, but they're principally from like the 1920s, 1940s, so stuff that was old hadn't been done for a while. So that's good. Um, So I didn't, you know, it was not like someone else had done it recently. Then, as I continued digging, I found that there was a lot of records. So because what these privateers did was illegal, they often were prosecuted in U.S. courts, sued in U.S. courts. And their uh, records were preserved by the National Archives as part of their their federal uh, court records that they preserve. So different branches around the country uh, have these records, and no one had really looked at them very very much over the years. They've just been sitting there waiting for someone to find them. And they had great stories. They had um, you know details from the voyages. Uh, all the participants would be would be um, would give testimony, give depositions. So you have from the captains, from the investors, the owners. Sometimes you get the sailors themselves. So you rarely get a glimpse of what they their experience was. And so just, just wonderfully rich um, uh, sources that I was able to find. So I put those two things together, and I had a great uh, story that I was able to tell that no one had done recently. So that's why I came to decide to write about the, uh, the privateers in the early 19th century.
0: As you... Explain in your book, you have this very uh, unusual world. We we, we sometimes think of the early republic. We think of, you know, the young nation. We think about, you know, the the westward expansion and so forth. And you describe a a dynamic that sometimes gets overlooked, which was the relationship with with what we now call Latin America, the dynamic of the uh, revolutions that were taking place there. I was wondering if you could perhaps – uh, explain a bit that context and this issue of privateering and how Americans came to be involved with it.
1: Okay, so the the um, the, the, the Spanish-American, Latin-American wars of independence, they, they really touched off in 1808 as an outgrowth of the Napoleonic Wars. So, of course, Napoleon is at war all the time in Europe, trying to conquer as much of the continent as he can. And one of the things he does is to invade Spain. He uh, imprisons the Spanish king and puts his brother on the, on the throne instead. Uh, the Spanish people in both Spain and in the colonies in the Americas, one response is to resist having a, a Napoleon really ruling Spain. So they formed these governing councils to rule in the king's name. So at first it was to resist France on behalf of the king. But some people in Spanish America, they wanted more. They wanted more autonomy. They wanted independence. So they began using this event to push for independence. So those uh, Spanish Americans who are seeking independence, they're really fighting against France for a time and against uh, other uh, people in Spain who want to keep control over the colonies. In the 19th century, like in the 18th century before, whenever there was a war, uh, there was privateering. So a privateer is a privately owned vessel that receives a license to attack enemies. And the reason a country would do this is that it uh, augments their naval power. Anyone who's owned a boat knows that boats are really expensive to maintain and to keep and to build and all that. So countries, they wouldn't keep a a large navy during peacetime. They would just call uh, into action these uh, privately owned vessels by giving them a privateering commission. The incentive for privateers was that they got to keep what they captured. They go through a legal process, a court hearing, and then if everything, you know, everything checked out, they got to keep the goods that they captured. So in many ways, this was just this is what countries did in the 19th century. They they commissioned privateers. The Latin American countries, however, they didn't have a large uh, merchant marine of their own. Uh, most of their, their, uh, foreign trade had been carried in British ships or in American ships. So they, when they're looking to, to add to their naval force, um, they had to look abroad. And Americans, uh, who had pri- a privateering experience, um, in the, the War of 1812, for example, they were like prime candidates to become privateers. And they, Latin American countries reach out to them in various ways and enlist their, their aid. So that's the the larger context of how Americans became involved in the Spanish-American Wars of Independence as privateers.
0: As you explain, this gets tangled up with international politics, not just the issue of Spain trying to – regain control over their colonies after the Napoleonic Wars. But at the same time, you also have the United States engaged with a set of negotiations with Spain to uh, acquire Florida, to you know, basically maintain good relations with the European power. And, and you, so you have, you, you know, John Quincy Adams engaged in these negotiations. And yet you also have these Americans who are engaged in this, these acts of hostility uh, against the Spanish flag.
1: Yeah, so it touches on a number of different, um, a number of different considerations. The the treaty negotiations that were underway, it has the potential to kind of irritate those negotiations. The Spanish minister is always angry that the United States doesn't do more to restrain Americans from participating in the Spanish-American wars of independence. Uh, the United States pledges its neutrality during the war, which means that the United States recognizes a war exists, and they're obligated to treat both sides equally. And so they they, they want to stay out of this, even though there are domestic pressures to become more involved. <coughs> the, the the Latin American War of Independence is, is popular in the United States. People would like generally like to see the independence movement succeed. So uh, yeah, so they have a walk a, a tightrope between different um, different considerations and. You know, here it's important to remember the United States is a is a weak power in this period. It's not like the United States can just impose its will on other places, Spanish colon, former Spanish colonies, Spain, and all that. They have to be very careful about where the United States exerts its power because it could entangle the United States in a larger conflict with the European powers, and you know we victorious over the British. We're not not really victorious, but didn't lose to the British in the War of eighteen twelve. That's a fine distinction. People see the thing. People in eighteen fifteen thought the United States was victorious because Andrew Jackson won the last battle and everything, but they didn't lose. But you know, they get involved in another war, they might not be so lucky again. So that's certainly consideration that's in the background, touching all these different particular issues with the privateers.
0: And. It's that point about weaknesses is one that stands out in your book, not just in terms of America's relationships with uh, Spain and its other countries, but also in terms of America's effort to control their own borders. It's it's one of the themes that runs through the various chapters is how they're engaging this effort to, in effect, establish or, or, or maintain this uh, national authority in this area, where they have far more land than they have people, where people have are very independent and are you know perfectly willing to uh, flaunt, defy, and evade American authority in pursuit of these profits.
1: Yes, that's uh, that's certainly something you see. Um, you mentioned just just the vast territory, right? Uh, one of the things I think is, is interesting too—it's uh, not just you know on the borders, out in the middle of nowhere where there aren't any authorities where you can just move across the border with Spain, Spain or wherever. It's also like in the ports that the, these guys are able to take advantage of some of the weaknesses in the law. So, what, for example, um, some of these privateers, as a, as an aspect of U.S. neutrality, they have access to U.S. ports. And especially if they're what's called in distress. So if, you know, the ship is sinking or it's lost its rigging or it's out of water or food, uh, the Spanish-American vessels can go into the United States ports and they can get repairs and replenished and all that. They can a- actually sell some of their cargo to, uh, to, to pay for what they need to have done. Um, and that makes sense, right, because you don't want to have rules where guys just drown at sea because they can't come into port uh but the the one unintended consequence of that is that these guys can get into port legally and then once they're in port you know all kinds of things can happen where so even under the various uh, right under the um eyes of authorities they can be there and offload their goods um, you know, right at the port. So it's not necessarily just out in the middle of nowhere. It's right in the port of Baltimore, and the port of New Orleans. They can do these kinds of things to take advantage of those laws about being in distress and being a neutral means. You have to welcome right, both sides to be able to have access to your ports. So they're very, very clever about using the law, uh, kind of loopholes in the law, using the law against itself to to um, to achieve their goals.
0: One of the things I really liked about your book was that you focus on uh, uh, four geographic areas, Uh, the New Orleans area, Baltimore, Galveston, and Amelia Island. And in each of these areas, the dynamics are a little different and they point to – The various ways in which privateering operated. For New Orleans, for example, you're talking about a port which has just recently been taken over by the United States. It's on the Mississippi River. You have the Mississippi Delta. And you describe how there was this thriving uh, smuggling operation. You had actors like the Lafitte's who were uh, very uh, entrepreneurial in their approach. And how the amount of, of, of opportunities they had far outstripped the ability of these customs inspectors to assert any sort of, of uh, control over the process.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. In, in New Orleans, uh, the geography is critical. Um, some listeners may have, have been to New Orleans. It, it, it's like 100 miles or so up the Mississippi River from the coast. I mean, so there's a lot of territory there that's just not patrolled, not policed in any meaningful way. Uh, so you can easily, you know, sail uh, into the bayous in the backcountry there and get to the Mississippi River and down to New Orleans uh, without encountering any kind of authority. So that's that's part of their the secret to their success. There's just lots of ways to access New Orleans without anyone seeing. Another sort of perhaps unappreciated or underappreciated factor about the geography there is the fact that. Uh, uh, the Gulf Coast region there, New Orleans and Louisiana, right next to Spanish territory, especially in Spanish West Florida at the time, which is now the the bottom parts of uh, Alabama and Mississippi, the panhandle of Florida. That was all the Spanish um, province of West Florida. So laws there are different. Um, for example, the slave trade was still uh, practiced. Uh, the international slave trade, so slaves being brought in from abroad, was still legal in parts of West Florida. Uh, at the same time, it was illegal in the United States, in Louisiana. So it was easy enough for people like the Lafitte's to go over to some place like Pensacola, buy slaves legally, and then transport them again through the back country into Louisiana. So both the geography in the sense that there's just lots of empty space where you can operate outside the eyes of the law, but also when there are laws, they're different, very close by across the border that can be used uh, effectively by these guys who want to um, you know, want to they were able to make money off of this by the willingness to to break U.S. law to give people the kinds of things that they want.
0: You described the Lafitte's there and I it was, you know, struck by how much it was like organized crime, how they would take a percentage off the top and they would provide a degree of protection. And they were very... Uh, comfortable with using violence. And, and you set up the contrast between the Lafitte's and, on the one hand and then the uh, U.S. customs officials on the other, who are oftentimes very much at sea. And, and I also liked how you incorporate into that the United States Navy, who was comfortable with violence, but as you explain, they were hardly comfortable with the role that they were being asked to play.
1: Right. The guys on the naval uh, patrol, the the Navy guys on patrol in the Gulf region there, they they do not want to be there. Um, Part of it is just it's uncomfortable. They're far from home. But uh, really, they're concerned about their careers because they are assigned to this gunboat duty. So there's an idea some policymakers have that gunboats, so small vessels, Uh, You know, a couple dozen guys patrolling that. that, That's a better kind of more efficient use of resources in the Navy just to protect the coastal region and, to you know, patrol for smugglers and pirates and that thing. But the naval officers, they find that guys who have a lot of gunboat duty, they don't get promoted. So New Orleans is where naval careers go to die, and they're afraid that they'll they'll be stuck there. And there's a a scholar uh, who did a study of this and found that, yes, actually guys who went through that station were promoted less, uh, less frequently, it took them longer to be promoted because of the duty on the gunboats because you know the navy guys they they respect sailing at sea and being a real seaman out in the open ocean, not you know on the by the river you don 't have any skills for that, so those guys are not happy, and that contributes to a, a lack of interest in enforcing the laws even when they could. Um, there's a wonderful quote uh, I found from a naval officer. He's reflecting backwards on on his career from later in time. And he says, yeah, he was happy when the United States went to war with Britain, because finally he had an opportunity to distinguish himself, fighting the British, you know, a real opponent, not just cruising along the, the rivers and the Gulf Coast region looking for pirates. So they, you know, even when there were assets there that could have intercepted the trade, the the just there are reasons. I mean, various good reasons for them, um, you know, not to be well motivated.
0: And yet, the dynamic in Baltimore was very different from that. Whereas that that is a place that is more comfortable. Uh, Maryland has is part of the original thirteen states, and you're having a much more settled, established community. Uh, it's 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 closer to federal authority, and so you describe a very different set of dynamics at play about how you have these, uh, you know, these these established businessmen who are engaging yeah. in the trade and who are able to use the law very much, in, you know, in, in various ways to have this veneer of legality to these what were basically illegal actions.
1: Right. So the 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 Baltimore operations are a much larger scale, and 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 you're right. Part of that is because I mean they're in Baltimore, a more settled area. Uh, is right, it close to to, to federal, the seat of federal power? It's not you know on the frontier region or any close to Spanish territory. So those some of those options are not there the the way they have been in a place like Louisiana, and it is much um, much more of a. Sort of capital-intensive business. The ships are bigger, which means they're more expensive. They go on longer voyages, which again means you, you you need to have more investment to get them equipped and supplied and all that kind of thing. And the the men who operate those privateers from Baltimore, I think they they're really using the law in a much more sophisticated way. So the Lafitte, for example, they. And that's that's the way they operate. These guys in Baltimore, they're going to some of the owners there, they're going to be there for long term. Some of the captains, they have families they are settled they're rooted in that community. So when they uh, they're trying to get their make money on this, they're claiming that they're doing this legally, that they're participating. Uh, You know, with legal commission, some of them claim that they have expatriated themselves, that they have given up their U.S. citizenship and become citizens of one of the Spanish-American republics. So now they're not participating illegally in a foreign war. It's their war because they're citizens of another country. So they use the law to try to use the law to their advantage and operate as much like a business within the law as possible. Uh, So so it's a much more sophisticated Um, sort of intensive uh, operation they have in Baltimore.
0: That was one of the points that uh, really stood out for me when I was reading it was the fluidity of so much. And and nowadays we, we, Think of national identity as being this thing that you hold on to. That giving it up is not a, is, is especially if, you know we think of in our country surrendering American identity as a very big deal and not something to be done lightly. And yet these people would you know be willing to change their nationalities like they would change their clothes in, in part because it seems they were comfortable and and in, in knowing that they could change it back when, when when it suited them that this was going to be in their minds at least, a a temporary uh, change while they engage in this activity and enrich themselves.
1: Yes, I think one of the interesting things to me, one of the things I found most meaningful as I did the research was to find guys who, it seems like at the beginning, they were going to adopt this kind of Spanish-American identity just for convenience so that they could get around the law, so they wouldn't end up in jail, um, that they could undertake some kind of voyage that would be profitable then it seems like over time they adopted more and more of a sense of of an affinity for Spanish America itself, or at least Spanish-American independence. Part of that might have been an outgrowth of seeing uh, the American uh, model of independence embodied in in Spanish America. That was something that that was kind of a fad in the United States in the 1810s and 1820s was the the enthusiastic supporters of – Latin American independence movements as you know sort of the second coming of the American Revolution. But you do see some guys, uh, some of the captains in particular, a man named uh, James Chater was really interesting to me. He starts calling himself Diego Chater and he signs letters uh, DC and he does this to business associates he goes back and forth JC DC and he also signs a letter or two to his wife. He signs it DC which indicates to me I mean, he's not fooling her that his name is really Diego or something. Um, but it, it seems to be that it's something that he kind of slipped into without really thinking about it. So, so you're right. There's this kind of change in, in their identities, their affiliations. And I think it, it really emerges through their experience as as privateers. And for some, it's, it's no doubt calculated just to, to be able to do what they want and avoid the law. But for others, it seems to be something that they really take to heart. And that was Probably one of the most interesting uh, findings that I had through the
0: research. Uh, another figure that stood out for me was uh, John Daniel Dennels, who not only you know like so many of these other uh, individuals uh, adopts a uh, you know basically a different citizenship of, of in order to. Uh, stay right with the law, but also he eventually rises up and becomes a uh, an officer in the liberation movement, and and may even, as you mentioned, have uh, met uh, Simone Bolivar himself.
1: Yes, yeah, he's one of the best characters in in the book, There's uh, you know, I, I have a, uh, there's a wonderful painting that I found that the um, Maryland Historical Society has that he commissioned the painting of himself uh, in a Colombian naval uniform. And so that's that's how he wanted to present himself, is in the the, the Colombian uniform. Uh, and he's a wonderful guy. He uh, uh, well, wonderful in the sense of being interesting. Uh, he has many negative uh, characteristics. He's he appears to be very cruel to his crew. He thinks that he can kind of bully them. <coughs> he has a really uh, interesting incident where. He some some guys had escaped from his crew, and, and when he was in South America, he runs across them in the street of Baltimore, and he threatens them. He threatens to flog them, but he apparently threatened them by saying, "If he ever saw them in South America, he would flog them." So knowing that he can't get away with this in Baltimore, but he could in South America, where he is more important than he would be in Baltimore. And yeah, he he seems to have that the the title that he gained in the Colombian service, commodore. He carries that around with him for the rest of his life. Um, I imagine he was like, uh, like like Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Always insisting on being called Captain. Right? <laughs> Danels, I just imagine him always insisting on being called Commodore Danels, and that's the that's the title he carries with him the rest of for the rest
0: of the days it really does suggest a, a, a no small amount of pride in in uh not in the rank he had attained and his and his activities he that it wasn't something to be ashamed of to be doing this privateering and that's another aspect of the book i thought was really interesting was the degree to which these people were maybe not quite heroes but definitely not proud uh, not ashamed of you know, engaging, fighting for uh, these liberation causes uh, and, and engaging in this, this criminal activity. And I'm wondering if that might have been because they, they saw it as not criminal activity against the United States, but criminal activity against Spain.
1: Exactly. I think that um, you know, Spanish-American independence is popular in the United States, and it's fighting against a, you know old Spain, the monarchy. And yes, it might have violated the law, but it was in the right cause, is probably the perception that people had. And you're right. Yeah, you're right. He does. I mean, he 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 owns that that title, and 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 certain, certainly, that's the way he presented himself for the rest of his life. Uh, he you know, he got sued all the time because of what he did in, in the moment. I can't remember offhand if he's prosecuted, um, but he doesn't. Certainly never. Even if he was were prosecuted, he didn't go to prison or anything like that. So uh, there are no you know, negative consequences in that way. And he comes out of it. Um, and, You know, the fairly wealthy man, certainly comfortable, and he's able to provide for a large family. He names one of his sons Bolivar, which is really really interesting. Uh, That was another thing that was a fad in the 1820s was to name a son Bolivar. Uh, But for him, he actually met, uh, he most likely met uh, Simone Bolivar himself. Uh, So a little bit different category there. But yeah, he's a great character in the story.
0: You just mentioned another uh, interesting dynamic to in your book, which is how so many of these merchant captains and, and it, uh, went after these privateers, because we think of privateering in terms of criminal activity, and you describe the effort uh, by federal authorities uh, to criminally prosecute these individuals and how that. Uh, was not necessarily successful, but you describe how these captains were much more successful going after them with civil claims. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that judicial dynamic and and how that played out uh, in the United States.
1: Right. So there um, are any number of cases uh, in, on, on both sides. So there's the, the criminal prosecutions and the civil civil lawsuits. And one of the things I found is the criminal prosecutions are not very successful. There's only a handful of men who are convicted Um, and uh, they're they're charged with a number of crimes, piracy, uh, slave trading, uh, violating U.S. neutrality laws. It's it's a crime to participate in a war uh, against a uh, power that's at peace with the United States, so going to war against Spain was illegal. The only time anybody's seriously punished is if there's a mutiny involved, for example. Uh, There are several cases where ordinary sailors mutinied uh, they may have murdered someone along the way. I, I don't remember the exact details. And there are a few of those cases where they are convicted of piracy. And then a handful of them are executed. But the, the captains, the investors, the higher level guys, they they're not prosecuted, or they are prosecuted, but there's is not successful. Uh, and of course, I have no. There's no indication. We don't have the jury's deliberations or anything like that. Um, so I don't know exactly what was going on. Uh, On the other side, on the civil side, however, what usually happens is that the former owners of the property, usually a Spanish merchant, uh, they will sue to get their property back on the grounds that um, their property was captured by a a, a privateer operating against U.S. law. And so that's that's the point of contact for the U.S. legal system to get involved, is that there's a violation of American law that preceded these captures those are more often successful and um one of the differences in the way the cases are handled is that the civil cases proceed under admiralty law uh which in admiralty law there's no jury so it's only the judge makes the decision so it seems that that might be one difference that a judge is more willing to agree to the 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 spanish um arguments in in the case and may have less sympathy for the American captains who are engaged in privateering. So that's certainly a possibility. Uh, At the same time, I think I wouldn't necessarily reach the conclusion that in criminal matters, the juries were so sympathetic that they overlooked violations. Because one of the the elements that the prosecution has to make out is is intent. So all these laws involved, you have to be knowingly, Intending to take property that you know isn't yours, and one of the legal defenses that the privateers mount is, well, we were acting under commission from one of the Spanish American countries. So in our minds, we were doing this legally. And again, without any direct evidence, I think that's a strong possibility that juries were accepting that argument—that even if they weren't taking, even if they were taking something that wasn't theirs, they lacked the sufficient intent that would make it into piracy and it involves a capital crime and execution and all that kind of thing. So the two different sides uh, are really interesting. If you just looked at prosecutions, then, <clears throat> I think you get a misleading um, uh, image of what the, abil- of the ability of U.S. authorities was to kind of crack down on this
0: activity. So what was it that brought this era of American privateering to an end?
1: So there were a number of factors. Um, one set of factors were the geopolitics, uh, so uh, the the wars were moving in a different direction. So uh, by the 1820 or so, you really get a, a steep decline in privateering um, from the United States, in part because uh, the Spanish-American countries are more successful than they had been previously. And it becomes very clear in the early 1820s that Spain just does not have the resources or the will to continue uh, fighting to get back its colonies. It's going to take an enormous effort, and they're just not they're just not able to do it. There's, a, there's a, some of the officers. There's a coup in which they they refuse to continue going over to um, to to South America. Sorry, perhaps coup isn't the right term, but they, they're refusing to go back, and that's really a sign that they're not going to be able to reconquer the um, the Spanish American colonies. So that's one dynamic that's changed. Once there's not a, once there aren't wars, then there's no more privateers. They don't, there's no reason to issue commissions. Another factor is in the United States they changed the law, so there are some enhancements to the Neutrality Law to close up some of the loopholes that had existed. For example. Um, uh, one of the tricks that Baltimore uh, operations used is that they would clear port, so so they would get their official paperwork from the customs collector that they are going on a, a merchant voyage. and Then they'd go down in the Chesapeake Bay before hitting the open ocean, and then they'd add more men, more supplies, and all that kind of thing, and they'd change the privateering after they, they got into the ocean. Well, one of the laws, uh, for example, requires that if the customs collector suspects that there'll be a violation of U.S. neutrality, he can uh, impose a bond on the ship. So if he sees that, you know, there are too many guys on this ship, there's too many, too much food and supplies, you're not just going to a short trip to Cuba, you're probably going to be cruising for six months, he can require them to post bond, which then increases the, the amount of money committed to the voyage. So it drives up the cost significantly. Another kind of um, hidden factor here is, uh, or unexpected factor, is the the panic of 1819, which strikes the, first the banking system, and then it's a widespread, um, uh, we'd call it a recession, I think, in today's terms. That really devastates the ability of some of the merchants to finance these operations. <laughs> so they have, uh, private union is one of many different activities they have. And they just, they, they don't have the capital anymore to invest in privateering because they've been devastated by the Panic of 1819. That was especially a, a major problem with the Baltimore, uh, investors in Baltimore privateers. So all those things come together, um, and they're able to control this problem by the 1820s. And, you know, really by 1820s, it's on a decline. Some Americans, they continue participating in the Spanish-American Wars of Independence, um, Commodore Daniels, we mentioned before, he stops being a privateer and then goes and serves in the Colombian Navy. But overall, the numbers are way down by
0: 1820. Yeah, I, I think about how you end the book with uh, 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 Chater, who has had the successful career as a privateer. And you have him ending his days as a riverboat captain. It's it's kind of a very poignant mm-hmm. way of, of of talking about you know sort of what, what you know the, the the end of this period and and and, and you know how prosaic that the the, the fates of some of these men were after it ended.
1: Right. So Chater is in contrast to Daniels, uh, and they I, I have I have their addresses in the early eighteen teens. They live close close together in the same neighborhood. And um, in the 1820s, Daniels moves out to a much a much nicer neighborhood, much swankier address he has, and Chater stays in the old, same old neighborhood, the kind of sailor town down by the docks. So he's not as successful as Daniels is, is never able to make the same kind of money. for. A, a, it's just part of it is he's not as fortunate. Um, uh, uh, so he then has to go back to work <laughs> once he gets back from – he comes back finally from Spanish American in the later 1820s. There was a time when he was pursuing a, a, a naval service um, in uh, Colombia, and then he's thinking about Mexico, maybe. Eventually, comes home, and he has to continue working until he's a, an older man, becomes kind of like an old, an old captain on the riverboat. Um, he starts a business at one point, uh, giving it, promising to give intelligence and uh, information on anyone wanting to do business in South America. To kind of drawing on his experience that he had. And, you know, by the end, it seems that his earlier service in Spanish America was kind of forgotten. So not the same way Daniels right, wore it as a badge of honor, uh, Chaser seems to have kind of moved into obscurity uh, towards the
0: end of his life. You mentioned how in his obituary, they describe, you know, Chater as a sailor and all the things he's done, but they uh, leave out any mention of privateering.
1: Right, yeah, it's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's that's from an, an earlier, an earlier part of his life. It's just not, it's not there anymore. At the end, yeah.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: So I have a number of things that are coming out soon. So just in the last week or so, um, a long-term project I've been working on uh, was published. That was a, the uh, Encyclopedia of Atlantic World History. So I'm very excited to, to finally see that come to fruition. That's a multi-year. Project, multiple volumes, 200-some contributors, so that was nice to see come to conclusion. I've also been editing a collection of essays on pirates, pirates in the uh, the Golden Age in the 17th and 18th century. So that should be coming out from uh, University of Georgia Press in June of 2018. So that's reach, uh, inching towards the finish line. And then my sort of long-term book project is A History of the Newberg Conspiracy, so I'm kind of getting off the water, changing gears a little bit, and talking writing about um an event at the end of the American Revolution, when uh some of the officers in the Continental Army who were encamped in near Newburgh, New York, uh they were getting angry, upset about they hadn't been paid in years, their pensions that they were promised may or may not actually come through. And there's this event where they there's a call that goes out in camp to to resist Congress in some way. And George Washington has to talk them down. There's a very famous incident, the way he, story about the way he resolves the problem. He, he puts on glasses at this address to his officers and they, it, he remarks that he's grown gray and blind in their service, which makes everybody cry. Um, so, kind of fleshing out the, the full story there, talking about well, was it really a conspiracy, how much of a threat was there of a coup or something like that, <coughs> trying to figure out some of those questions, and really talking about the kind of ambiguous way the American revolution ended uh, in its last two years after Yorktown. And it ends in many ways is unsatisfactory to the soldiers and the officers who fought the war. They go home feeling unappreciated. And then the longer term then is how that plays into the movement for a constitution and the reforms you see in the finances in the early Republic. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, so uh, hopefully that'll be finish the not-too-distant future. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my that's my work right now.
0: Well, those all sound like excellent projects. Uh, David, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Well, thanks again for having me.